This week, we have Christos and John, program managers for the developer advocacy team for Identity. How's it going, guys? All good. Excellent. Not bad. Excellent. Uh, where are you guys located? I am. Um, I'm an East Coaster. <laughs> we got, we got a race condition here. <laughs> John, <laughs> East Coast. Christos? Yeah. Incremental backoff didn't work. Uh, I'm, I'm based in Redmond. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Very cool. So um, the first thing we're going to talk about, we, we just have one news story that we're going to talk about, and we didn't talk about this in the last episode. We we're saving it for this one, which is the um, Apple M1 announcement, which um, I didn't really watch because I wasn't that excited about it. And then I went back and I saw some highlights, and I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. It finally gave me a chance to throw away my piece of crap uh, 2017 MacBook Pro that costs a fortune, by the way. Um, lots of MS Dev Show episodes were, were edited on that. Uh, Gazelle is actually giving me a thousand dollars for it, which I couldn't be happier for. Um, because wow. it's, yeah, because basically I, I know, I bet you their prices are plummeting, like as the benchmarks are coming up for the M one, because this new Apple M one chip, uh, which is, ba- you know, basically based on their mobile chip, but they've scaled it up a little bit for their, um, for their laptops and their, the, the Mac mini. So they have the, the air 13 inch Mac pro and then the, the, um, the Mac mini, um, this thing is just an insane, insane, crazy fast beast, like insanely fast. Um, so I used to use, um, so my, the 2017 MacBook pro I used, uh, primarily for final cut pro and like this M one chip is basically like the fastest. It is the, the, even if you get the air, like if you spend nine 99, um, or if you buy even their, their, um, like I was saying the Mac mini, you buy the cheapest computer they have. It is the fastest machine that they have. Like even if you spend $10,000 on some crazy giant machine um, for things like Final Cut Pro, this is like their fastest machine. It is just, it is nuts. They've they've totally, I don't know what they're thinking over there because it totally kills the sales of like everything else they make for the time <laughs> being. Um, but it works out good for us users. So um, what I wanted to talk about real quick was I, I was... I was going through the the checklist because the you know this thing's not perfect. Um, since it is an architecture change, your apps have to be updated, or you have to go through their Rosetta translation layer, which is like emulation. Um, so anytime you go through that, you're going to have less battery life. You're going to have worse performance. Although still compared to their old computers, um, it's still pretty dang good. Like it's not it is not the a curse of death or anything. But basically, I I want. Um, for my laptop, anything that I'm going to run on there, I want to be uh, recompiled for the for the M1 chip. So um, I did a little bit of research. So I found uh, VS Code. If you're using the latest Insider build, it actually has native M1 support, which is great. Um, you just got to run the Insider build. Um, Office, if you run an Insider build, they already have uh, the full Office suite over to M1. And that's not the iPad version or anything like that. It is their desktop version of all the apps, which is awesome. Um, I'm hoping that includes OneDrive. I think it does. I'm a little concerned about that, but, um, I'll find out once, uh, once I get mine, uh, edge is already has a preview build that runs on the M one, uh, natively, which is cool. Um, uh, Microsoft teams, I've not been able to find out any information and there might be information internally that I could go get, but, um, I haven't, I haven't gone down that Avenue. I'm just, you know, I'm coming at this from the, as a, as a, as a, just regular tech person in the in the community and not using inside contacts to figure this one out. So I'm not sure if and when Teams is going to uh, come up with a build. I assume that they're going to. It's just a matter of when. Um, Docker has announced plans, and I think they have some internal builds. So that's soon. That's like right around the corner. 
Um, Handbrake has a preview build, uh, which is a video re-encoding tool that I use quite a bit. Um, and then Adobe Lightroom, they said next month. So basically December. So we don't have to wait very long. Um, so yeah, those were kind of the key apps that, that I look at, um, which is, like I said, is mostly Microsoft apps, but a couple development and video and photo tools. Um, so it's pretty impressive how quickly everybody is, you know, scrambling to get stuff put together there. So who plans on getting one? <laughs> I have a 2018. It will be hard to justify an upgrade. In terms oh, it's of, trash now. Uh, it's total trash. It is. It is. <laughs> but I'm not doing as much on my Mac these days that right, right. I used to. And uh, so it's it's almost in there as a backup machine. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. Also, there are things that I would like to, to do more. So... I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but M1 does not support x86 uh, virtualization, right? So I won't be able to run VMs on yeah, that box. Yeah, I, no, yeah, you're correct. You're correct. There's no virtualization. They they tease something, I think, at one point. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. And, and honestly, like Apple has really been leading up to this. They've been deprecating um, tons and tons of things, um, um, you know, on the path to this. So... Um, yeah. And, and honestly, like if you are a developer um, and you just want to use this thing for like full-time development, it's probably a terrible idea. Like your laptop well, uh, <laughs> will give you many, many less headaches and is plenty that, fast. That surprises me now, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I remember, and I know quite a few developers that will try to work on both environments across yeah. the board. Like sometimes they will switch from the Mac OS to Windows uh, in order to be able to achieve certain tasks. So mm-hmm. I am surprised that uh, they have not really catered to that audience because there are a lot of develop- professional developers that use Macs. And yeah, maybe VS Code is working, but there are other tools out there that they probably rely on. So yeah. I'm Docker's keen the to big see one. how that evolves. Yeah, yeah, Docker is the major gap right now. Um, yeah, you're going to have major issues with that. If, if you are purely in Apple's ecosystem with um, Xcode and things like that, then you're you're probably fine. Um, I, I just, I think it's really early days. So for me, um, my number one use case, you know, for, for the laptop is just a video editing machine. And then all day long, I sit at, at, in front of my, uh, windows PC, which is, um, I don't know, what is it? 12 cores and 64 gigs of memory. And, you know, I have like dual M.2 drives in it and, you know, like it's, it's untouchable in terms of like micro or Apple products, unless I do want to spend 10, $20,000. Right. Um, so you know, that is definitely not obsolete and, and I'm, I'm going to do all my development on that. And, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, like a lot of the Linux stuff that I do now, I do through the, in VS code, they have, they can do the SSH. Yeah. You can do the yep. SSH into the containers and, and do all of that kind of stuff. So I run a lot of virtual machines on my desktop as well to connect to that. So, yeah. So yeah. for me, it feels like they've gone back to the grassroots kind of movement where uh, a lot of uh, artists, a lot of uh, design work was taking place on the Macs because yeah. they were superior in terms of performance. And then there were the boring, in quotes, uh, developers or, you know, the, the office stuff that you have to do that you have to use Windows for. Almost brings back those memories of the advertisement where Macs were supposed to be fun and can be creative. And then right, on Windows, right. you do the boring things. But uh, I don't know. It, it's 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 a weird kind of a, a move, and I think we're talking about that with JP about how they're reinventing the ecosystem so they can you know sell more and start anew. But uh, it is a business decision, so I'm interested to see how that pans out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm excited about it from the pure, the pure like video editing performance 
And uh, the rest of it is just kind of a nice to have. And, uh, you know, the thing, the their laptop. So I bought the Air, um, you know, incredible battery life, no fans. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I got the 16 gigs of Ram, which is actually the max. And, um, I got the one terabyte of, uh, of storage space. So not a very expensive machine. And it's, it's interesting too. Apple actually gives Microsoft employees a discount. So, um, I think it was a little over $1,500 for a pretty impressive, nice little, like super portable device that lets me do video editing on the, on the go and then run, um, you know, run some of these development tools and I can kind of watch that ecosystem as, uh, as that happens. So I'm really excited about it. I think it's, I think it's really good and it's incredible to see Microsoft support like across the board of like how quickly these things are getting up and running on there. So it'd be fun to watch that progress. Yeah. For me, you know, the, the downside is, is I just really don't use Macs Mm -hmm. nearly as often as either of you guys uh, have talked about using them. So from my point of view, it's kind of curious, you know, if it's got this good of battery um, life and this good of performance, where is that going to push the rest of the industry that's not Apple? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, are other uh, chip manufacturers and computer makers going to, you know, try to push their ARM plans or, you know, try to achieve similar results without Apple? I hope if so. If we can. Yeah, that would be amazing. I hope so. But, I, you know, I was thinking about this before the podcast. Like, I think it's really difficult because Apple can literally just say, this is the way we're going and you all will update all your stuff. And like, it's really I don't want to say fanboys, but like, you know, this is an audience that just says like, OK, whatever you say, we'll do it. And mm-hmm. on the Microsoft side, like you do that, you do the same thing and you say everything's going to arm. And they're like, I have this 10 year old legacy application that, uh, you know, we're not touching it. You must make it work. And it, it's a different like power dynamic at, at play there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that makes it really difficult to do because there's nothing keeping, you know, Microsoft from doing the exact same thing. There's the Surface Pro X, which is an awesome arm machine. Like there's no reason why it can't be doing exactly the same thing. Just be a screaming machine at these specific things and have amazing apps. But it requires those developers to um, be forced to come over and, and do this. Yeah, I mean, you can run .NET 1 apps today on servers and people expect to be able to run .NET 1 and mm-hmm. not break anything. Right. And, you know, Apple has the freedom to go and call it courage and remove uh, headphone jacks right, right. and chargers. And, and you the, will just the, deal the, with it. Yep. And, and I'm not taking, I mean, I'm not taking uh, a job on Apple. In, in fact, I like the fact that they're pushing the envelope again. They're they're pushing the innovation to new things. And they've done it with the iPhone in 2007 when they, they obliterated the market. I'm, I'm keen to see how everybody responds to that change mm-hmm. and whether we're going to see lower efficient, more productive, more efficient um, CPUs coming out. Because, I mean, the CPU space has tailed. And I might be talking from my backside, but... You know, uh, it, it was the race of megahertz and gigahertz at some point, and like how many uh, things we can squeeze. Now they've they've gone down to how many uh, nanometers they're designing and etching these CPUs, and I'm I'm keen to see what the next step will be. How many operations can we squeeze into these devices, and how we can improve performance? So mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to to see what the change will be like. Uh, yeah. I'm just not going to be 
the first wave of people that do the early adoption because I don't really have a need for this kind of hardware or performance yeah, right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just saw I saw an opportunity to sell that laptop for <laughs> for some residual value. I was pretty I was pretty impressed. I think it was like ten seventy seven is what they gave me with like an Amazon gift card. You can get more if you take an Amazon gift card. I'm like, okay, fine, give me give me like three percent extra or whatever. But um yeah there will be some pain but for for Final Cut Pro it's going to be a screaming machine. I mean the thing is like two to three times faster than just their 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 pro model from you know from last year like the 2019 macbook pro is i mean i feel bad for anybody who bought that thing like right before this like you literally a month ago could have bought that and spent three thousand dollars on a machine that just got spanked by a thousand dollar machine i mean just like no no absolutely no contest and that's uh that's that that's got to suck. <laughs> Hopefully you're within your uh, 30 day return window. Somebody was at 31 days though. And was like, no. So, okay. Well, I think we talked about that, uh, plenty. So why don't we move on to a much more interesting topic, which is Microsoft identity platform. So, um, let's talk about this. And, and I thought we'd start from like the developer's perspective. So what is the Microsoft identity platform? Do I have to pick somebody? <laughs> Who wants All at once. Go ahead. Go ahead. Christos. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I was going to say interesting because we find it extremely interesting, but not everyone out there finds identity equally as interesting or whatever. But uh, the Microsoft Identity Platform, in effect, provides you with the tools to to be able to authenticate and authorize users to use your app. So uh, there is this kind of aspect of managing identities within your system. But um, there's also this kind of other aspect of identity that we don't really talk as much which allows you to uh, you know, create secretless apps that benefit from things like Key Vault and Azure to run your infrastructure, uh, minimizing the risk of um, exposing sensitive information. Uh, it can be used to uh, secure your CICD pipelines. So there are all these aspects of identity that allow you to build secure apps and manage uh, identities for your users uh, using a delegated system. So you, you don't own that uh, identity you don't store that information anywhere. It's all stored for you. And as a developer, you just have to consume the service and build around it. And that's mm-hmm. the beauty of that. You let somebody else write the difficult code, the encryption, the hashing, anything that has to uh, store information securely. And then you just consume the service uh, using our libraries or your own libraries. Yeah, that's a good point. Because honestly, like if I do it myself, it's going to be done wrong. Like I'm I'm not going to do as good of a job with, I mean, with, with the attack surface and and all of these things going on, like it's, I'm not going to do as good of a job as as the experts. Well, I think so, that's what we see is that most developers most developers are not interested in it in the sense of I need it because it's a mm-hmm. it's obviously I have to sign users in an, an app that doesn't know who a user is isn't terribly useful, right? There are just too many things that are driven by who we are and our own data and that sort of thing that an app that I can't sign into is is a marketing site, essentially, at the end of the day, right? Or it's something so ephemeral that it's okay that I don't know who the user is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most apps need to sign a user in and know who they are to show them the right data, to give them access to specific resources. But it's, it's step number five on a 200-item punch-down list that I've got to do to get my app out the door. I've got to design a database and design an API surface and do UI and do all these other things that I just want something that's going to work uh, that I can have confidence in. I think that's the big difference is um, 
there are lots of different services out there that purport to do this. And there are lots of different code packages and you can stand it up on your own and everything else. But at the end of the day, you as the developer need to feel confident that you're not going to end up on the front page uh, or in the have I been owned database <laughs> because somebody went and grabbed your, you know, uh, grabbed your username and password database and shared it out to the world. Yeah. I remember early in my career, um, we were building a, a, a public site where I was asked to kind of, we had an on-prem Azure uh, installation, or I'm, I'm sorry, on-prem Active Directory installation. And, um, you know, we had uh, some customers that we wanted to you know, go to one page and have a single sign-on portal. And I remember I was definitely way in over my head, but, uh, you know, I, I was able to kind of kludge it together and make it work in, in under a month. You know, today, you know, what does it take to get some of these, you know, modern, secure identity pieces stitched together? Do I need to kind of like really deep dive and really understand identity? Or is this something that kind of any developer with a reasonable amount of, you know, research time looking at the documentation can pick up pretty easily? God, no. I mean, you, you remind me of everybody else between... Like I, I, I did, I've done in my career, right? I've, I've rolled down my own identity, God, um, I, I fear for what I've built in the past. And we know a lot <laughs> of developers that will actually go through this kind of a, a whole month journey trying to understand what OAuth is, what OpenID mm -hmm. Connect is, what SAML is, what single sign-on is, and trying to set it up themselves. It's a lot of pain. And this is what really turns people off. So they either don't do it or they do it incorrectly or uh, they find the first thing out there on the internet, they copy paste something and they make it work. What we are trying to achieve with the Microsoft Identity Platform is uh, once you set up your tenant, and usually that tenant is managed by somebody uh, in the IT team, they will set up the tenant, they will have set up the users. And from that point on, uh, it should be fairly straightforward following the documentation to build something and implement uh, authentication in your systems uh, using uh, and the MSL libraries for your ecosystem. So if you're in Java, JavaScript, .NET, Node, Go, we do have the capability to implement all that out of the box. And we do have documentation and samples that guide you through the experience. Ideally, like if you're doing it with .NET today, it literally takes four lines of code to add all that. It takes more time to configure your app registration inside Azure AD rather than just to implement it in the code. And then obviously that's the simplest scenario. There are other scenarios there, but... Um, for .NET, we try to make it easy. We're trying to take that model and make it as applicable to other languages. But from my perspective, if I can get your app out of the door in, with four lines of code, and you don't really have to understand how uh, OAuth and OpenID connect and what the protocols are behind the scenes, then that's perfect. I mean, if you want to learn, uh, be my guest. You can go and do your own research, but uh, we want to make it simple and uh, you know, uh, bulletproof for developers or, or, you know, foolproof for developers to add the appropriate lines of code, add the configuration settings in their app uh, without, um, you know, putting any sensitive information out there and allow them to, uh, to move on with the other task. Because as JP said, identity is uh, item five of your 200 item list and you don't want to spend three months doing yeah. that. So let me push back on something you said there a little bit. So I'm, I'm looking at uh, the documentation. So the, uh, if you go to AKAMS slash identity platform with capital I and capital P, mm -hmm. it gets you to kind of the landing page. And then uh, there's a link that says, what is Microsoft identity platform? And it's got this color coded chart that says, what kind of app are you building? Mm -hmm. And you said that, you know, it takes like four lines of code, 
but I see like some like single page application um, and uh, background processes. Those are pretty straight lines that don't have many dots on them. Mm-hmm. But then I see something like desktop or console app, and I don't know uh, how many different kinds of loops and circuits there are in that uh, little squiggly area there. But that looks like it might be more than four lines of code. You know, what, what you know, you have the best case scenario. What might be the worst case scenario? Uh, well, uh, I think if we're talking about .NET, there are uh, probably uh, 50 or 60 lines of code that you have to do. Let's say if you're mm. building a web API and you need to uh, implement the OpenID Connect and look at your JWT tokens, or JWT tokens um, then there is a lot more code involved there than three lines, uh, but it's all documented. We do have the samples. So the whole point there is you say what kind of app you're trying to build and we point you to the right location, whether it's a single page app, a desktop app, a daemon or what have you. And hopefully that will guide you down the right path. But usually it's not as um, simple as that and you're absolutely right. Usually there are end-to-end scenarios. So not only do I need to authenticate the users, but they also need to access the database securely. And I also need to speak to Graph and I also have other APIs because I'm building a solution rather than a single forum or whatever, which might be the Mm -hmm. case, right? So from that perspective, one of the things that we are looking at is how can we provide these end-to-end scenarios to developers? So not just how do I authenticate my users, but how do, can my app authenticate users and speak to an API and pull data from SharePoint and speak to a database? And unfortunately, uh, there are so many different permutations and scenarios out there that it's very, very hard to document all of them. So uh, one of the things that we do is uh, we stream twice a week on the 45 show on Twitch and YouTube, and we try to cover those scenarios on, on a more end-to-end kind of approach. Hey, if you're trying to build this, this is how you add identity there, but these are all the other things that you haven't done or you need to do, and let us show you how to build an end-to-end scenario, right? Uh, but you're right. It, it, it's usually a lot more complex than just uh, authenticating users. Well, I'll go back to the the simple example. So you mentioned like four lines of code to, to get up and running with this. So how do I find what those four lines of code are? I know throughout history, there's been, you've had like, there was different documentation pages I've been able to find. Like where do, where should I actually start? Our, our docs right now are actively developed all the time. Uh, one of the goals, uh, obviously, for us as developer advocates is to speak to the community. Mm-hmm. And then when we find gaps or when people are getting confused, take that feedback and feed it directly back to either feature PMs or documentation. Yeah. Right now, we, we're building Blazor docs for, uh, because you know Blazor is so hot these days that everybody wants to do WebAssembly. Mm-hmm. We, we found a gap there. The first thing we did was work with our documentation team to build this. Same for gRPC, you know, it's super hot these days. People want to build low, low-end low gRPC services. Authentication should be a component of that. We're building that as well. So every time we find a gap, every time we talk about something and it's not out there, Kotlin, for example, we just built something with the IntelliJ team and the JetBrains team that came to the stream to talk about that. Now we're building the doc with Kotlin so people can benefit from that. So where do I, I start? Do I start at the aks.ms slash identity platform? Is that what you recommend? Ideally, you start from the docs, yeah, because we okay. do have this kind of a guide where it says uh, what you're building. There's also another project that we're working on um, uh, that will provide a lot more guided, opinionated approach to how you build things. Uh, we'll provide links, hopefully by the time this one goes live, I don't know how soon it will go live, and the website being out. Uh, we want to also help developers with more opinionated, guided approach on this is how you build it, this is the doc, this is a sample, uh, this is a video showing you end-to-end, and go and do it. That's an ambitious uh, project that uh, we're working on. 
Yeah, I, I like these docs. This looks way better because I see in here, I'm just looking at the JavaScript one where you have like a configuration with your client ID or authority, redirect URI. Um, you specify some cache information and it's basically just that line of code. Yep. So I like that. <laughs> That's Good. the way it should work. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, a question that I'm thinking of just now that maybe we should have, you know, done a little bit sooner um, is, uh, you know, I'm just kind of looking at, you know, it says Microsoft Microsoft Identity Platform. And to me, that means we have a lot of pieces to this platform. You know, can you just kind of go over like what are the maybe not product by product, but what are the areas that Microsoft is offering identity services and you know, kind of where, where do those, you know, each one kind of start and stop? We're kind of in a, <clears throat> we're in an interesting position because we're both a service provider in the sense that we offer services like Office and Azure. Um, and people will need to access data in those services. So I need to manage my Azure subscription. I want to you know, check my calendar with a third party app. So that's one whole sort of set of services just to make that work, but then also just to make it so that a developer can write an app that, that can access that data, right? So there's one whole sort of categorization of apps of, are you extending part of our platform? Are you building an app for teams or are you uh, building a, a calendar scheduling app or something like that where you need to access a user's data where we hold that data as a, as a service provider, like uh, an Office 365 or an Azure. Um, we have another whole bucket of apps though that are more around the identity as a service or the identity system as a whole where I need to sign users into my apps. I need to uh, authorize them against APIs so that they can call an API from their own front end or from the front end that we've built. And so there are all the services that go around the sort of developer experience of, I need to sign users in, I need to know who they are, and I need to go access some data on their behalf. Um, then there's sort of a third bucket or a third categorization of apps, which are uh, apps that I'm selling to other people. So this is, you know, say I'm a, a company like a, Adobe or a Dropbox or somewhere like that. Um, a lot of my customers are corporate customers. A lot of my customers might be enterprises. And there are probably a lot of mutual customers that are both my customers and also Microsoft customers. And I want to unlock that entire ecosystem to sign into my app. I want to give, I want to add the hundreds of millions of people uh, who are in the Microsoft identity system. I want those to be potential customers of mine. And I want to give their administrators the ability to control who can sign in with all the different kind of controls and, uh, and things like conditional access to force MFA before you sign into my super cool app or uh, to only access it from a protected device. All the kind of administrative stuff that's offered I want that for my customers too, and I don't want to build that. So if I'm building software to sell, um, supporting our platform or supporting the Microsoft identity system as a whole it can be potentially a big boon for business because I've got a ton of new features that I can offer, and I don't have to build a single one of them myself, right? Um, so that's one. That's kind of the first question we ask when we talk to a lot of customers is, who's going to use this app? Is it going to be people who work for you? Is it going to be people who you want to sell to as your customers? Uh, or are these people who could come from all sorts of different places? Your corporate employees, your customers who could be individuals, your customers who could be big Microsoft shops, your customers who could be completely devoid of all Microsoft services. We want to, we want to make sure we can support everybody. And kind of our second question immediately afterward is, well, what kind of data do you need to access? And 
the combination of those two questions kind of gives us a good idea of which direction someone should consider, be it, am I building an app for my internal business to use, uh, an expenses app or some line of business critical thing? Well, that's one path. Am I building a uh, building an app that I want to turn around and sell, but I also want people to be able to sign in with their Twitter accounts and their Facebook accounts? Well, that's a different path. Um, and so the 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 code implementation work is four lines of code or 15 lines of code or 30 lines of code. Um, it's kind of like WCF. It's 98% configuration, it's 2% code, and you never get the configuration right the very first time, right? Mm. <laughs> yep. So... It's a it, it's it's sort of a it's kind of a curse in some ways. It's a blessing and a curse in the sense that it does a whole lot of different things, and there are lots of different ways to uh, to start using the platform, and there are lots of different entry points because we have to support both all of our customers, uh, but then also we want to attract more people to come and use the platform. So there are lots of different entry points, and there are lots of different uh, sort of mechanisms and features and components that you can use. Um, which is great because we can talk to a lot of different people and hopefully solve a problem for them. But at the same time, it hurts because if you're brand new to this and you're like, I just need to sign people in. Why is this so hard? <laughs> and you go to the docs page and, oh, well, here are 4,872 questions you need to answer for us to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Not to mention that the identity industry as a whole is, has somewhat of an esoteric and very specific type of vocabulary, which, of course, scares newcomers off, too. And you kind of are in the, you're kind of mixing in a lot of different things that turn it, make it very frustrating for, for people who are new or people who maybe just aren't interested, uh, but need to do it to get it sorted out. Yeah. So speaking of like terminology and things like that, so there's Azure Active Directory or AAD, and then I hear B2C, I hear B2B, like I just want to authenticate my users. So what is all of this about? <laughs> <laughs> How long do we have? Uh, is this going to be a series? <laughs> it's much simpler. It's much simpler than that. We'll just do a Thanksgiving. We'll just do a Thanksgiving two months. A marathon, yeah. <laughs> so at the, 48 hours. At the root, there's there's Azure AD. Azure AD is sort of the core, the core identity system. It runs our services. It runs your services when you use Office or when you use Azure Dynamics. Its primary focus is for authenticating organizational users. <clears throat> so if you have Office today, if you have Azure, or if you have Azure today, you have Azure ID uh, or Azure AD because it's required. You must have it um, in order for our services to, in order to sign in and use your services, you must have Azure AD. So that's primarily focused on organizations. It's I need to sign a user in. I know who they are. I've synchronized them from my on-premises Active Directory or some other directory service. Or I'm a 25-person shop, and we've just gone and created accounts for them directly in Azure AD. And somewhere there is a list of those users, and there is those passwords are or hashes are are secured somewhere, right? That's if if you think oh, yeah. of it that way, it's it's a database, right? For sure. Yep. Yeah. So it's a database. It has lots of different features that sit on top of it. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's a username and password database. Um, and it's intended to be used by your organization. Um, there's a feature that's a part of Azure AD called B2B. And this is where we see a ton of confusion. So I'm gonna, I'll try to be super precise in the language. B2B is business to business. And B2B is all about collaborating with other people to work on your stuff. So... If I was to say that uh, say that I hired a uh, I hired a company to help me plan an event, we're gonna do uh, build 2.0. Only it's gonna be all about identity, and nobody's gonna come. So we're <laughs> gonna go build. We're gonna go do build 2.0, and uh, 
and I want to hire this. I hire an event management company. They're going to help me figure out all of the marketing and all of the uh, event lists and, and attendee scheduling, all that sort of fun stuff, all the kind of stuff you have to do to plan an event. But they don't work for me, but they're working on my behalf for the purposes of, of planning this event. And so if you think about what we did 10 or 15 years ago, we're like, oh yeah, here's a domain account. I just went and created you an account in our Windows Active Directory on-prem. Just use this and sign in. You can get to SharePoint or file shares or whatever you need. Instead of doing that, we want, we're going to invite them in as a, as a B2B guest. So we're going to invite them to our directory and say, hey, cool. Instead of just giving you a brand new username and password, we're going to let you use the one you already use for your organization. And we're just going to put a little pointer in here so that you can sign into both. So now they can be, they can have rights in SharePoint. They can look at your Azure subscription, you know, whatever things you want to do that you would do with a normal user who works for your business, you can give them access. A key part of that is that you control what they have access to because it's your data. It's in your organization. So if I'm the administrator, I can control the four people from this event firm who we've hired. I can control what they see, how they access it. Do they have to use MFA? Do they have to come from a specific IP range? All those sorts of controls are mine because it's my data that we're accessing. So that's that's what B2B is intended to do. Intent, the, the intention of B2B is I need to work with somebody else on a common goal, but they're accessing my data and working with me on my stuff, right? And it's a feature of Azure AD. It's not a separate sort of instance or tenant or directory because why have one word to describe what one thing could be when you could have three. So B2B is a feature and it tends to be used within your organizational directory to bring in new people. Okay. I get it. And then there's a, and then there's a B2C. B, B2C is a separate directory and the intention of B2C is it's for customers, business to customer. Um, it's intended that sort of any identity from any place comes in and is, is made a part of this B2C directory. And then I use that against my mobile apps or my web apps or whatever. But those apps are, are publicly facing in most cases. They're intended for your customers to use where you don't know what their organizational relationships might be. You don't know all that sort of stuff. You just want somebody to come in and sign up with a username and a password or sign up with their social account. So that way, B2C is a lot simpler to explain um, because it is a username and password database that also has some social features you know, stacked on top of it. Um, and historically, we've talked about B2C as, oh, it's a Swiss Army knife and it can do anything, which is true. But the fact that it can do anything doesn't really help someone who just needs to know what it does at its root. And what it does at its root is a username and password database plus social. So does that mean like if I wanted to authorize this is going to, of course, the terminology is horrifically confusing a Microsoft <laughs> account, uh, which I still call like a live ID <laughs> mm -hmm. is that I would use B2C um, if I had, if I did a spy app and I wanted you to just use like Jason outlook.com, that's not my email, but if I wanted to just authenticate you, is that what I would use? Yeah, that's one way to do it. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I could also authenticate Facebook users and Google users or not. Yes, yep. for sure. Okay. Yep. Okay. Like, well, how long is that list then? So we've got a dozen providers okay. out of the box, GitHub, um, Amazon, oh, uh, Weibo, all sorts of stuff like that. So I could, um, I could authenticate you to my website with your GitHub account. You, yep. you yep, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, 
And then if you if you have an external provider who doesn't support or who we don't natively support or have a built-in integration with, as long as they're standards-based, because all of our directories are standards-based, um, you can still use them. So we had a, a friend of ours go and build a social network um, using people sign in from Twitch. So they could sign in from Twitch, you know, video streaming site. Mm-hmm. They could use their Twitch sign-ins to sign in through B2C, uh, and then they would update their status and, and do whatever. And that's a, a pretty straightforward integration because it's just a standard OpenID connector OAuth2 uh, integration. So if your provider supports that, it can also be supported in B2C. Yeah. Now in the in the B2C world, like I'm I'm a little crazy about this. Like I hate signing into one site with the login from a different site. Um, I actually do a separate account on every site and I do a randomly generated password um, just because I don't trust anybody. The only the only companies that I trust to stay around are like Microsoft and I would I guess I'd put Google on that list and maybe like Apple login, you know, like just the giant companies where I'm just like, yep. there's going to be so much wrong with the world if they if they can't if they literally just can't authenticate me anymore. <laughs> so I sort of I, I will trust those ones if I if I have to use a login, but I usually opt to just, you know, create my own. So can I do B to C and have the user create a new account or do they have to authenticate with a different provider? No, you can, they can create a new account. Okay. Uh, they can create a new account with an email address, a phone number, or a, uh, just a, just a username. Okay. So I could just, I could just use that as my authentication system. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And that's, cool. that's the default actually. So if you don't okay. configure anything else, the default experience with BTC is using your username and password. So everything okay. else is optional. And you can choose as a developer whether you want to bring them on your platform or not. Yeah. So uh, you, you can totally tailor the experience. Okay. Because, you know, in the enterprise world, I'm sure there's a lot of B2B. Like I, a lot of the discussions that like Carl and I have in our in our day job is around B2B. But the reality is probably like 90% of the people listening are, have some kind of website and they want to authenticate like normal people. Um, and they're, they would be interested in B2C, I, I would think, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Th- that's, that's what right. we see. Yeah, <clears throat> we see a, a whole lot more interest in B two C for from indie devs or even from from people who may work for a big organization during the day, but they're building something on the side or they're building public facing stuff. We had a we had a customer just um, just elect to use B two C as their corporate standard for all customer facing apps because they want to offer that to all of their customers. Um, and certainly, you know, and Azure AD and all the sort of corporate org stuff is cool, but. They're far more interested in, we just want people to sign in, bring an identity if they want to, but give them the option to create a new username and password and and go on. Like I'm like you, I don't use third-party logins hardly at all because I don't know, I just don't want to. It makes me anxious. I just use LastPass and super long passwords. So. Exactly, exactly. I, I think the password is like a as, as almost a, a certificate in and of itself because they're so long. <laughs> yeah, like... So one other related question that I had specifically about AAD is, you know, you know, we see, you know, Microsoft obviously is running its identity on there and as are many other big businesses, but how small is it realistic for, you know, a small company, let's call them like the MS Dev Show podcast, like would it make sense for, you know, a group that small to, you know, try to set up AAD or do you see that there's maybe like a minimum threshold? No, we, we cater to startups and all the way to the largest corporations out there. Right. So uh, if you are the MS dev company, right, you probably have office, 
running somewhere. So you have Azure AD by default. You have to you don't have to pay separately for that. Uh, and even if you go down the B2C route, you do get 50,000 logins per month for free, which means that, you know, as a startup, you can benefit from all that without really having to have any upfront cost uh, or upfront cost. Uh, and the nice thing about developers, because we tend to care developers, is as a developer, you don't have to think about scalability. If you're building your own identity system, you have to think about what's going to happen to my database once I grow and once I go bigger. Uh, one of the figures I like to throw out there and always uh, catch us by surprise is the amount of logins that Azure AD does per day. That's 30 billion logins per day. That's an insane <laughs> amount of numbers yes. for logins. But as a developer, I don't have to worry about whether I have one user or 100 users or 100,000 users per day accessing the system. All I have to do is add the appropriate libraries into my code and the backend system will take care of the scalability. Mm -hmm. So you know that I have a secure backend identity provider. You do the implementation and uh, whether you are a startup with five employees or three employees or whether you uh, are the scale of Walmart trying to uh, you know, run their operations, uh, for us, it makes no difference because we can cater to all of these people. As you grow, obviously, there will be uh, organizational challenges and you know, uh, different departments and you have to, to build your Azure AD around these kind of uh, uh, permissions and what have you, but you don't have to worry about all these things upfront. You just start as you are. Okay. What is what is MSAL, MSAL, Microsoft Authentication Library? And because I'm like looking at Node.js, for example, and I see MSAL preview or Passport.js. Yes. Yeah, that's uh -huh. our yeah, that's our authentication library. That's so we have uh, the 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 service itself implements two primary standards. There are lots of secondary ones or old ones like SAML and stuff that are implemented too. But the two primary ones for modern, if you're building a modern app today are OpenID Connect and OAuth 2. Um, because we implement those standards, you can use any library you want. Uh, so if you are like an identity wizard, or if you're really super into it, or if you've got legacy code or vendor code that somebody else who was an identity wizard wrote, um, you can use a, any sort of standards backed library to connect to Azure AD and to con consume different things about it. Uh, in some cases for, for platforms where we haven't published a library, that's the only way to integrate with it. So if you're using um, Erlang or something, then since we don't ship an MSAL for Erlang, you're you're going to have to implement it uh, implement it on your own. And I'm sure there's a there's a language or there's a package out there for for Erlang for OpenID Connect. MSAL is our library that we ship for working with our working with Azure AD or B two C. It's primarily a sign in and token acquisition library. So when you need to sign a user in or when you need to uh, get an access token to talk to an API, say the uh, the Microsoft Graph, which is of course one of the most common APIs for Microsoft stuff. I wanna access my calendar. I get to that through the graph. So when I wanna access that API, I have to have this token to do that. And in order to get that token, um, I need I use MSAL to go and get the token. So we have MSAL for lots of different languages. Uh, the node one is in preview, it sort of just came out. Um, but the, the intention of those is to give you a very consistent experience across each platform that you might be using. Um, and it really hides a ton of the complexity away behind it. Um, so that you don't need to understand what auth code with pixie flow is, right? Um, cause that's a new one that just got implemented for JavaScript and it's, it's part of a, it's a much newer spec. And if you had built your own library, you would have had to 
implement that on your own. And instead, if you're using our library, you just update your dependencies and away you go. And then what is this Passport.js? Is that a third party library or is that? It is. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense now. But it's a, not, it's not a, that we're talking about. <laughs> Now that we're talking about MSAW, I think there is a great segue to also mention that there is a remnant that called it's called ADAL, which mm. is the first version of the Identity Platform that. library. Yep. And uh, it's still out there, but we did announce the the deprecation of the library as of uh, June 2022. Uh, mm. So we have two years or, or a year and a half to uh, migrate of that. So if you are using it today, our, our call to action probably today would be uh, reach out to us or make sure that you're looking at how you can move away from ADAL because it will not be supported after June 30th. But MSAL is the way to go forward and we're trying to add support for as many languages and platforms as possible. Okay. On the on the Passport thing that you mentioned, Passport is a, is a third-party library for, it's essentially middleware for signing users in. Um, and it uses this sort of package-based thing where there are lots of different packages for different providers that have anything sort of custom implemented for them. So there are hundreds of them. Um, we have one called Passport Azure AD, and it's an internal team owns it. So a Microsoft team builds that and publishes it, but it's part of this broader ecosystem for uh, for Passport JS, and that's what we have for Node today um, until MSAL Node is available. Okay, so I built um, I built an an add-in for for Outlook that needs to authenticate a Microsoft user and. Um, it's, it's really complicated because, you know, I understood the B2B scenario that you were talking about. It's like, hey, we're going to just um, set up permissions for these users that are in this uh, in this other directory. And we will sort of treat them as if they're in our directory from a from a standpoint of being able to authorize them to access certain resources. But whenever whenever I start to try to build something to authenticate people like in my own directory, I always run into like these consent roadblocks, like somebody has to consent. Can, can you oh, yeah. help? Can you help me? Like, I, ne- I never understand who's supposed to consent to what and like who, whose privacy is being violated or whatever is going on there. <laughs> I mean, if you're on the internet, your privacy is being violated. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't it, consent. Mine's being violated. I think mine's being violated right now by 25 <laughs> different services. But, um, so, uh, we talked earlier about we're a service provider. So mm-hmm. we have, we hold a bunch of data about a lot of people. Um, that they willfully give us their email and their calendars and their OneDrive files and whatever. Um, the whole premise of the OAuth two and, and OpenID protocols, which is what sort of backs all the modern the modern identity stuff, is we needed a good way for two systems to talk to each other, who potentially don't actually know each other and don't potentially have any any trust between each other. Mm-hmm. And there's also this attitude of. If I want to access my data in another service, so we'll use Facebook as an example because Facebook is one of those things that everybody hopefully knows what Facebook is. And since we're talking about privacy destroying organizations, then I figured they're top of the list. So, uh, so you've got like photos in Facebook and you've got your contacts in Facebook and news posts and all sorts of stuff, right? And I want to download a nifty app that's going to download people's profile pictures and stick them on my contacts and my phone because I hate seeing, you know, JP all the time for all my, all my friends named John. Mm -hmm. So this app, which is built by somebody who I may or may not know, most likely don't know who they are. It's, it's in the play store, the app store, whatever. 
I go download this app and it's like, hey, just type in your Facebook username and profile. What could possibly go wrong, right? Or your username and password. And then you talk about, well, I'm signed into Spotify with Facebook and I'm signed into, you know, 4,000 other apps, my pharmacy with Facebook. Well, now suddenly this username and password gets way more, way more uh, heavy in terms of what it can do. And so consent or scopes, you consent to a scope is really a way to say, I want to use this app to access my data and I'm gonna give it access to do that, but a very limited amount of it. And my this app is never going to see my credentials itself. I'm gonna give my credentials to the provider who I know. And I'm gonna say, yeah, I allow this app to look at my contacts and get their photos, right? It's very, uh, kind of very similar to what you have on your phone when it says, hey, this app would like to use your location. Yeah, so that's me consenting to allow Facebook to share that data with whatever app I'm using right now. Right. Yes. Because that app was built by somebody else and you have really no way to verify that right. their application is in any way safe and not, you know, copying yeah, yeah. all your data and yeah, sending exactly. it somewhere. Exactly. I don't want them to just, you know, oh, you logged in with Facebook. Therefore, you know, what do you want to know? Do you want to know anything else yeah. about this person? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a it's that whole sort of flow of, hey, this app would like to sign you in and it would like to uh, read your contacts and it would like to write your mail to your mailbox. All of those things are, are what we call scopes. Um, and the scopes themselves, uh, a user has to consent to in some cases. Um, and what those are typically called delegated permissions. So if you were to build an app that wanted to look at my calendar, you would say, hey, uh, John, I'd like for you to consent to me reading your calendar. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say, yeah, I accept. I want to let that happen. And so now you can read my calendar, but you can't read Christos's calendar. Mm, actually, so I will throw a wrench into that. I can't read your calendar either. Well, maybe I can um, because that was the kind of my follow-up question. So, you know, you're able to consent to that, but then aren't there times when your then your company also has to consent to it? Yes. Okay. So, so that's the second wave, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's this concept of a delegated permission, which is one where a, a specific user says, yeah, I want to let app ABC access this data on my behalf, mm -hmm. and they're allowed to do it. But you have to request that consent from every user who wants to use your app. And you only do it once. Like You don't have to re-consent unless permissions change. Mm -hmm. But you're asking for that from each user whose data you'd like to access. And for users who have yet to consent, you cannot access their data. The other side to that is when you don't necessarily have a user, but you want to read everybody's calendar because you're building like a, a admin tool or something, mm -hmm. right? That is when you can, instead of the consent being for an individual, that's a consent for the whole org. So somebody who is an org administrator, a global administrator has to say, yeah, we're going to do this. And that's called admin consent. And so that's a way for applications that need a broad scope back-end services, scheduled tasks, things like that. And typically we see them as admin type of activities. That's when those apps have to have an administrator go and consent to them because there is no user. And so we're essentially consenting on behalf of all of our users to that specific app. The third case is when a user may be able to grant you a permission and say, yeah, I'm going to let this happen. But your admin says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to let this application uh, read the directory as you because that's way too much permission because there's right. privacy implications to that. And so in certain cases, not only will a user have to consent, but an administrator will also have to consent and say, yeah, we're going to allow that because some of those permissions, some of the things that you can do, you can go and read the gal. You can look at the global address list. 
Any of us can, because otherwise, how would we send emails? Um, that's fine for me to do in Outlook. That's fine for me to do in Teams. That's fine for me to do in some other sort of Microsoft first-party thing. Mm-hmm. It's not really fine for a third-party app that I may download just as a general user, not as an administrator. Yeah, let's like call that. it like if I if I made a new app called Super Outlook. Yeah, Super I Outlook. Can't, I can't just do that because. You know, you know, I work for Microsoft, obviously, but I'll just say my company, my company is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we're not, this is some random person making super outlook and they can just siphon off all your data. So, you know, we're not going to just allow that by default. So that's the idea. Exactly. Okay. That's the idea. Yep. Okay. I'm getting And, and, and something that we come across all the time is that when we use our Microsoft domain to do samples and stuff, there's a very good chance that the permissions will try to ask require admin consent and you get blocked by that. So you have to either request access if that's a legitimate app that you're building. You have to, there's a process to request access for that uh, consent to be granted or by admin or you use a test tenant. So you can use a test right, tenant right, and then right. you take that app and say, hey, this is what we build. Uh, it unblocks you from um, building the app and then you can go back to your company and say, hey, Super Outlook is awesome. Uh, let, let us know if we can use it uh, within there and then get permissions. So Microsoft really protects us from doing silly things and reading <laughs> people's sensitive information. And I think other orgs um, hopefully apply the same kind of policies for well, developers. Maybe too. maybe not a, not on purpose. <laughs> it's it's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because like I've worked with so many of these giant companies that mm. the number one question I get in terms of authentication, they're like, hey, uh, you're Microsoft. Do you know who I talk to to get this? <laughs> you know, the admin of our tenant, they don't, they don't know, like they're just a user. They don't know who to go to. they're asking us to figure out how to navigate like their internal company because they just don't know that is, it's an, it's a big problem. Right. We talked to a customer the other day and they said, yeah, we looked up the admins and it's admin 001 and admin 002. We have no (laughs) idea. We don't even know where to go from here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So earlier on, uh, Jason and I actually wrote down the exact same follow-up note. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it was you, Christoph. You mentioned a secret list. Can you secret expound list. upon yes. that? Because that sounds just really interesting. Oh, man. I love that bit because we we actually did a session, is it two weeks ago now? I can't remember. Uh, at .conf where uh, we turned up and we showed people how they can actually build apps without... Uh, needing to store any secrets. And secrets can be API keys. It can be your SQL connection string. Um, anything that can be used within your code to actually uh, compromise the integrity of your solution. And the whole point for us is to be able to provide the right tools for developers to not only run their applications without any secrets, but also build their applications without secrets. So you're, you're developing locally, you need to speak to your SQL database or your uh, Cosmos DB or your storage account somehow. Right now, we have the ability uh, using the Azure SDKs to authenticate the local account that you're using inside Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code or your Azure CLI and take that account. And as long as it has the right permissions to the resource that you're trying to access, uh, without passing any secrets, it can access that resource. So you use the local account. And then when you move that to the cloud, you can use Manas Identity. So Manas Identity is uh, something that is backed by Azure AD. And a lot of services on Azure come with a mass identity, so your VMs, your app services, have a, an, an account that is created for that service by uh, Azure Active Directory. And you can use that in your code to say, if I'm going to access my SQL server or my storage account, rather than me configuring the SQL connection string, I'll point to the SQL database and I will use my managed identity, which has a very limited scope of permissions. And uh, 
Uh, another another thing you can do also is to use Key Vault to pull some secrets uh, at runtime. So for example, uh, if you're building an ASP.NET Core app or ASP.NET 5 app, you can say at, at startup, rather than putting everything into my configuration file and then checking that configuration file somewhere in source code, I want to populate that configuration file from Key Vault. So you point to your Key Vault, you're using your managed identity that authenticates against Key Vault that only has permission to read those secrets and then it populates your, uh, it bootstraps your code. So now your code does not have any checked in secrets, but it can use them on runtime and it can go and speak to the services. Uh, another aspect of secretless is also deploying that app to your production. So think of ARM templates where you have to uh, create a VM or you have to create a SQL server and you have to provide an admin username and password or any other services that rely on secrets. I can actually configure my ARM templates at deploy time via Azure DevOps or, or GitHub Actions to go and speak to Key Vault, grab those secrets, populate my ARM templates and deploy uh, the appropriate uh, admins or um, accounts that I need to have without actually putting them in source control. Again, avoiding that kind of a uh, attack surface or removing the attack surface. And we can do it with uh, Terraform, we can do it with uh, ARM templates. Um, we're trying to, to show developers and organizations, how they can eliminate that risk. Because I've been in so many companies where developers had access to production systems. They could go and have admin permissions to their Azure subscriptions, to their database servers. And this is a, a scary premise. There are so many examples out there of either accidentally removing or accessing data that you shouldn't do, or um, maliciously going and deleting stuff or encrypting databases. I think there was an interesting story with uh, the San Francisco public uh, transit where one of their admins got fired and he was allowed to go back to his desk. So he encrypted the uh, the main database um, and he left. And I think for a few weeks, the, the San Francisco public transit or transport was operating for free because they couldn't actually access the system. Um, it just goes to show that providing that kind of access to developers can be super scary. Also, I don't have to, I don't want to have the liability as a developer knowing my production environments. So Key Vault and Azure AD can safeguard against all these and provide you with an end-to-end -end experience without you having to change code. That's, that's the important bit, right? I can run the exact same code on my local environment as I'm running in production and my IT admins manage the keys or Azure AD manages the keys. All I have to know is where I'm pointing my backend or where I'm pointing my code to, and it will work automatically uh, without me worrying about that. And that's a very interesting premise. It's this kind of a facade of Microsoft identity that not many people uh, know about, and we love to talk about that, obviously. Yeah, and I think uh, many people who are above a certain age have those stories to tell about something they did, uh, whether it's on accident or, you know, just fat-fingered something. So many stories. Uh, yeah, and we want, we don't want you to uh, to be another Sony, another Capcom. Like Capcom got compromised two weeks ago, and it was in the news every week. If you go uh, on Hacker News, you'll find some something or some company that got compromised because a mistake was made. Like go to uh, GitHub today and search for uh, SSH keys, and you'll be surprised how many private keys or public keys or PGP keys have been checked in. Sometimes they are accidentally checked in. Uh, sometimes they, they're totally unaware. Uh, in fact, I got uh, flagged by Microsoft. They run a scan on all the GitHub repos and they, they flagged one of the solutions I wrote three years ago. And it was there was a, like a proper um, incident report that was generated and sent to me. And they're like, you have put your Azure app registration uh, secret inside your config file. 
obviously that app registration does not exist anymore, but they did flag it to me. And we have CredScan that runs when you commit code to GitHub to uh, eliminate that risk, but it's not uncommon for people to check in very sensitive information into uh, their repos, public or private. Yeah, yeah there's, a, I mean, there's a great website called shhgit, like S-H-H-G-I-T.com. And it is a live feed of all secrets that are being, or things that look like secrets that are being uploaded into GitHub. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. So, you know, I was Holy just cow, it's like, it's like multiple per second. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying, but at the same yeah. time, it's also quite interesting. So, but pl- please don't use it. Like, Pop PSA here, please don't use any of these secrets to access any of the systems because right. you could be, uh, you know, end up in some hot water. I'm not encouraging it. I'm just saying you don't <laughs> want to be out here. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, as I was listening to you talk about, you know, secret lists, you know, one of the uh, other questions that I had, you know, was about managing identity across different, you know, functional areas. You know, we have the infrastructure that it sits on, you know, the actual IT administration, as well as the development. And with, you know, these managed identity and secret list concepts, it seems like once that's set up, there's less of that friction in place of working between those teams because of the automation that that provides. God, yes. That's the, that's the whole point, right? We want to make it easy for developers. We want to make it easy for IT pros. So, you know, you, you set up your tenant once. Uh, you, you don't set it up every week. So once you can figure everything, then uh, hopefully if you're running on Azure as well, that's so integrated and so easy to, uh, to work with. Well, I mean, easy probably it's an overstatement, but once you understand the, the dynamics, what is ML's identity, how it can be consumed in code, how it can be uh, uh, configured and uh, secured with RBAC. And uh, final story, it doesn't have to be on Azure because we did do a stream where we used uh, Azure Arc to actually uh, provide managed identity features outside of Azure. So now if you're running on AWS, if you're running on Google Cloud, if you're running on Prem, if you're running on Rackspace, the whole point is that once you attach your devices to Arc, they look and feel like they're Azure VMs. So you get the same capabilities as um, running on Azure. And that, that also includes running code on them using managed identity to secure against Azure Active Directory, uh, which is not um, you know uncommon for people like there's... Uh, people that run or companies that run on, on Google and they still use Azure mm-hmm. AD for authentication. Right, right. Okay, I know we're running a little long on time. Um, anything that uh, you didn't get a chance to mention that you're dying to mention while we still have you? <laughs> well, we uh, so we do a, a stream, like mm-hmm. a live coding stream twice a week on okay. Twitch, um, which is at aka.ms forward slash 425 show. Uh, we it's Mondays and Fridays at 8 a.m. Pacific, um, and we we try to go beyond kind of what the samples give you. Of uh, I need to do a thing end to end, right? I need to build an app that's going to talk to an API that's going to talk to store some data in Blob Storage and Cosmos and SQL DB. And we have lots of identity samples for the first part. We don't really have a whole lot for the second half. Yeah. So we try to find scenarios that are much more end to end because we've got the time and the and the uh, the ability to do them, and uh, and we do that twice a week, and um, it, it's been a lot of fun, and and we have a decent uh, decent number of sort of uh, repeat uh, repeat watchers who come and hang out and keep the chat lively, and and uh, I think we have a good time, and we try to keep it pretty interesting, and we try to pull scenarios from what our customers are telling us and from what our viewers are telling us, and and build those next. Cool. Yeah, and a lot of um, MVPs and real developers 
real. Uh, actual developers that work with, uh, you know, in, in real case scenarios, I mean, we have the academic knowledge and we bring that along and we bring what some customers are doing, but we don't have full visibility of what everyone is building. So most of the shows uh, also bring people from outside of Microsoft to talk about what they've built, how they build it, uh, why they, they used Microsoft Identity, why they use Azure AD or BTC. Um, and it covers everything, right? It can be Kotlin one day, and then it could be DevOps the other day, then containers. Anything that has to do with identity, it's fair game for us. So uh, we invite people to join us live on the show or be guests. We'd love to uh, have everyone. But uh, yeah, that's that's the main bit and the, the most fun part of our job. Yeah, and I see they're recorded and you did some Twilio stuff, which is always super fun. So yes. <laughs> I love Twilio. Very cool. Very cool. There you go. Okay, so uh, where can people find you? I mean, you obviously mentioned the uh, Twitch uh, TV slash 425 show, uh, but where yep. where else can they find you? Uh, we're on email, we're on Discord, and we're on Twitter. We're very active on Twitter, so if you have any questions, okay. where can uh, they find you engage on Twitter? with us on Twitter, and then uh, we can take it from there. So if it's a simple one-liner answer, we can answer it on Twitter. If you have to reach out to us for uh, bigger support issues or leave your feedback, then we do have an email alias, the 45 show at Microsoft.com. Oh, sorry, it's 45 show at Microsoft.com. So uh, email us, anything. Okay. And where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, full name. Uh, mine is uh, Christos Matskas. And uh, mine, is, mine is Asher and Chill. <laughs> it hasn't aged very well to be quite honest but, you know, it's, a, it's okay <laughs> i feel like i need to change it but somebody's got the one i want so i'm waiting yeah. for them to I i'm waiting for them to give it up i understand okay cool <laughs> and carl where can people find you you can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on twitter.com slash techie. So guys, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about the uh, Microsoft Identity Platform. It's uh, There's a lot to it, uh, but it's very cool stuff. So thank you. Thanks for Anytime. having us. Anytime. Thanks for having us.